Welcome to Paradigms at Paradigms.life. Hi, I'm Baruch, host of Paradigms. Happy to be here with you, bringing you inspired, inspiring people with visions of a viable future for life on Earth that includes humans. This is the first episode in a two-part series about restorative justice. What is restorative justice? We're going to learn all about that in this first episode by talking with Karina Montag and Troy Williams. Karina is a psychotherapist, and Troy works with incarcerated people, helping them tell their stories and produce media that tells their stories, all under the umbrella of restorative justice. So Karina and Troy are going to talk to us about their work and their experiences, and we're going to hear some great music with that. And just to give you a little preview, next week's episode, part two, we'll be talking with Catherine Hervey, who's a filmmaker who's making a film called The Prison Within. And we'll be talking with Martina Cartman and Davida Briscoe, who work in a public defender's office in the state of Washington and implement a restorative justice program in the prison there. We'll also be hearing from a survivor of violence and an incarcerated person sharing his impact statement about his accountability and his life. It's powerful stuff, not necessarily for children, definitely going to make you think and feel. So let's meet my first guest on this episode of Paradigms. Karina Montag, welcome to Paradigms. Thank you. So nice to be here. I'm really happy to talk with you. You do a lot of interesting things. You're a marriage and family counselor, and you're the director at something called Stronghold, and you're involved in the restorative justice movement, which is something that's dear to my heart. I'd love to know about your work and if you could introduce listeners to the restorative justice model. Yeah, I would be happy to. Thank you for having me. So restorative justice is an alternative system to what we currently have, which is a punitive justice system. And in punitive justice, we really look at what happened, who needs to be punished, And in restorative justice, it's a much more holistic approach that harm happens not just between two people, but it happens to relationship, it impacts the community, and it's really survivor-centered. So that instead of somebody burglarizing a store, and I'm in California, and so then it's seen as that person versus the state of California... It's that someone was impacted by that harm. So the harm is between the responsible person who did the burglary and the person who was burgled. And we want to trust that that person has the best answer to how can this be made as right as possible. So the idea, the premise is that then those people, along with members of the community, come together and actually have a dialogue about this is how I was harmed These are the pieces that led to the harm happening and trusting the survivor to be able to articulate their needs better than somebody outside of that relationship to say, this is what I need to move forward. And that might be, I need you to work restitution and give me back the things that you took from me, but it might look totally different. And it might look like actually I need my bathroom remodeled, or I want my car to be worked on. And if you gave me that type of work or labor, then I would feel that things have been repaired and restored as right as possible. So what stands out to me is that this is about relationships between people in community. It's not about 
the power above and the being enacted upon someone below. Absolutely. Absolutely. That when harm happens, it damages relationship. And when we have damaged relationship, we can't function effectively as individual people in relationship with another person or in the larger community. And so what do we do so that that can move forward so that I can function as a survivor as best I can, that you and I can interact in the community as best we can, and that whoever did the harm is able to come back into the community with their dignity intact and working to restore their dignity. It's such a complete difference from the way we're used to viewing the legal system. I have a hard time calling it a justice system. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. How does this get enacted and what are you seeing happen as a result? It's happening in a smaller scale in schools. A lot of schools say that they're doing restorative justice and really what they're doing, and I can make this discernment in a moment, is they're doing restorative practices. But true restorative justice, where we're having a conversation, a dialogue between someone who has been harmed and someone who has done harm, might be um, an example is a victim-offender dialogue or a VOD. I facilitated one of those last year where the dialogue was between a man whose daughter was murdered and the man who was convicted of the murder. And so we came together, each of them had a support person, and we had a long dialogue. I think it was about four to five hours speaking to you know, what are the questions that the father wanted to know about the day that his daughter was murdered? What, um, he had questions about how did, how did you get to this place of this being able to happen? And the responsible party is able to answer questions, be available for that dialogue in a way that the survivor did not get from 20 years of incarceration. That harm was left undone in many ways. That's really powerful. Uh, I'll share that I, uh, uh, someone in my family was murdered and <laughs> almost 15 years ago, the person was never apprehended. We have no idea who did it. My reaction was never actually to seek vengeance, which surprised me. But yeah. I wanted to have a chance to look into that person's eyes so that we could see each other as people. And it, we didn't, that hasn't happened. That's not going to happen. But yeah. it sounds really powerful. Have you been there in the room when that's happening with people? Yeah, I mean, like this dialogue that, that I did last year was that moment. And I have been in the room at many times when we've done what are called surrogate survivor panels, where someone who um, has experienced a harm gets to sit in community and circle with those responsible for creating or causing similar harms. And I would say that um, what you just spoke to is the experience of most or many survivors. More than half of the survivors would prefer to have this type of an experience, this type of an outcome, as opposed to somebody just being sentenced to decades in prison, where the impact of the harm for the survivor remains unresolved. Often, often survivors have no voice in the legal system there's an opportunity to share a victim impact statement. And other than that, you know, most survivors feel dropped 
through that process and often re-traumatized, dehumanized. Um, so this really calls in everyone to the process and entrusts that someone who has been harmed knows the best way to then be healed. That's the first part of my interview with Karina Montag, who's a psychotherapist who works with the restorative justice movement. You can learn more about her work by going to wearestronghold.org. We'll be back with more of that conversation, but first here's music. The artist is Loni Deer, and the song is called Harm, and you're listening to Paradigms at paradigms.life. I must have slept for many years I fell asleep in the lion's mouth I didn't mind the danger at all It didn't do me no harm I fell in love so easily I was asleep when the air was calm I didn't mind the danger at all And when I woke up it was gone And I must have slept for many I had forgotten how the morning felt I didn't mind the danger at all slept for many years I fell asleep in the lion's mouth I didn't mind the danger at all I hardly see your face now I found a way to hide Kindness to me at all. Time didn't show kindness to me at all. I fell asleep in the mist, and it didn't do. I fell asleep in the 
That's how I fell from top of twelve stories to the ground. For the reasons I had, the ones I know, the ones I don't. For all I forgot, that is all I could do. That is how I want you. That's Loney Deer with his song Harm. And now here is the next part of my conversation with Karina Montag, talking about restorative justice and where it's headed. Where will this go? Where is, I mean, the, the restorative justice movement in this country, at least, it's not new. It's been going on for a while. It's getting yeah. legs. More and more people are hearing about it. I mean, where are we headed? And, and what's, your, what's your best possible scenario dream of where we're headed? So many dreams. <laughs> I would say that we... In this country, restorative justice under that name is not, it's new, right? It's just a few decades old. That said, community responses to harm have been happening since the very beginning. And restorative justice comes from Indigenous First Nations people. And it feels so important to name that and not feel that this is something new that has just come to come to into them it's more in the mainstream now but even before it was called restorative justice communities went to churches communities had people who were keeping an eye out for the children right those types of conversations have been happening all along my my vision my dream also holds really strongly as a prison abolitionist and so what i envision as part of this work Part of the amazing work of transformative justice, where we don't just come together but and talk about the current harm, but we really dig into the causative factors of why the harm happened and seek to transform that, is that we have a different way of holding people, that we have much more attention on tending to trauma before it turns into an outward expression of harm or an inward impact of harm, and that we have a much more um, inclusive system or structure where those who have been harmed and those who are responsible for doing harm are really sitting at the table and saying, this is how we know we can move forward through this so that those who are most connected and closest to the problem then also become the ones who are stewarding the solution. For some reason right now on this show, I'm having a lot of therapists. And uh -huh. <laughs> we're, we've been talking a lot about what creates harmful behavior, what inside us happens that makes us not be, quote unquote, our best selves. And uh, it all comes down to, as you know, it all comes down to do we have connection? Do we not have connection? Are we relational? Or are we not relational? Are we traumatized? Has that been worked through? Is it stuck? All that, you know, basic human stuff. So my question then is, 
in looking at creating this different model, which makes my heart sing to hear about it, what do we need to address in ourselves? Mm -hmm. What are our personal and cultural hurdles that we need to get over in order to fully embrace this relational model? I think that the connection to self and another, that's so important. This piece that makes us human about living in relationship with one another or makes us an animal, right? About living in relation to one another. And that really, if an animal is cast out of the herd or the pod or whatever, it's a death sentence. That there's no ability to survive without that relationship. So I think that's one piece that needs to be looked at. Is that, And that's something that we're doing with mass incarceration constantly, is we're putting people in extreme isolation and expecting that if and when they return home, that they will be one welcomed back into the community and that the community will receive them and that we will all know how to be. So that has to be different. I also think on a larger scale for true transformation to happen, for true reconciliation to happen, there has to be a foundation of truth. And in this country, we have not yet had truth around our own history about what's happening in the present. And so I really feel that until there is some truth process, it will be, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I think that it's just honest. I don't think that we can move forward until there has been some reconciliation um, or reckoning about the past. We'll be back with the final part of my conversation with Karina Montag after we hear this piece of music called A Sacred Thing.
That's Kevin Locke with his song, A Sacred Thing. And now here's the final part of my conversation with Karina Montag. You know, one of the things I've certainly run up against, and you probably have too, in advocating for, at the very least, reform, is people's anger at offenders in this very broad but sometimes very deep way that kind of excludes the possibility of recognizing the humanity of the offenders and the possibility of healing for them. And that's a toughie because it's, it's again, it's that, it's that punitive thing. Mm-hmm. Getting people past that to see that someone who's in prison is a person and that by continuing to traumatize them, you're not going to prepare them to participate in society. Exactly. It's really hard to get people to the compassion side from the punitive side. It, it is. And, you know, I was just speaking the other day on this, and I used this quote at that time as well. But as Fania Davis says, that we're, we're a society who harms people, who harm people to teach that harming people is wrong. There's fallacy in how are we hoping to achieve a different outcome if we continue to harm people and not hold compassion, understanding that people don't enter violence for the first time by causing it, that there's been some factor or many factors before that, that now this is where this is where we are, and that we all exist on a continuum of harm. It's very easy to say, oh, well, those people over there have harmed, and I have been harmed, but we've all done harm, we, and we've all experienced harm. And I think that it's uncomfortable and it challenges our kind of conventional thinking to broaden that binary. And I think that we have to insist upon doing it if we want to call more people in, which will essentially create more wellness for the whole. You, you just nailed it. It's that binary either or, mm-hmm. which is not real. It's not. It keeps us stuck. I mean, in my training, uh, what I was taught is that when you're in that either or, it means you're triggered. It means you're not Mm -hmm. in the present moment and you're Mm -hmm. relating to past traumas as if they're current. And it was a great piece of learning because if I ever find myself thinking it's either or, I know it isn't. Right. You know, and as a society, we are so caught in that binary thinking. We've, We've definitely got to get away from that. And again, you're back to the relational aspect. We're all on that continuum together. Absolutely. One of my hopes, my dreams is that we make a collective decision that we are willing to be uncomfortable with the end being that we have true community safety and wellness, not that we're being sold this false bill of goods that, oh, now we've incarcerated so many people. We have millions of people who are in prison, under state supervision, and our communities are actually not any safer. My guest on last week's show was a a therapist named Philip Baer, and he was talking about how we split off the shadow. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what I think our prison legal system is. It is a splitting off of our shadow. It is. I absolutely agree. And that's when I say stepping that we agree to discomfort is that then we understand that we having these conversations is challenging. It pushes us into the corners of things we don't choose to look at. And it's necessary if we really want to create true healing. 
Check out Karina's work. We are stronghold.org. Thank you, Karina, so much for being on the show. Very interesting work, and it's so important that our society turn towards justice. Here's a song called Prison Blues by Soja.
That's Soja with Prison Blues. Now we're going to meet my next guest on this episode of Paradigms, Troy Williams. You're listening to Paradigms at Paradigms.life. Troy Williams, welcome to Paradigms. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You are doing and have been doing some really interesting and powerful work uh, with uh, Open Society Foundations. You've been working in San Quentin Prison, working with incarcerated people, getting them to tell their stories. I would love to know a little bit about your story and how this work came about and what you see happening as a result. My story, you know, began with me really searching for a voice, right? I started off with me um, when I was younger, grew up in L.A., you know, in the life, gangbanging and living that sort of that lifestyle, but really looking for a way out, like really disenchanted with where I'm at at that point in my life. And I remember me and a couple of my, you know, my homeboys, we was we were watching the movie Colors and the way that the games were represented in that movie did not reflect my truth. And it just sort of hit me that I'm tired of everybody else trying to tell my story and romanticizing my story, but not getting my story right, not telling my truth. They're telling the truth of fear mongering or the truth of a 1% version of the story, but they were not speaking to, to my truth and many of the truths as, you know, from others that I, that I talked to, or it may have an element of truth in it and 99% falsehood, which leads you once again, to a non-truth, right? So I really wanted to find a way to like share my story and um, to like have a voice. And I started looking for ways. Unfortunately, my mindset at that time, I was sort of, um, I was walking the tightrope, right? I was no longer like gangbanging or living that, that, that life as a gangbanger, but I still was doing illegal things to get money. Those things is what led me to ultimately wind up with a life sentence. Um, in prison. But along the way, a friend of mine connected me to a guy in the Linwood uh, Media Department. And this guy took me through a short training course. And at the end of that training course, I got to produce a short PSA about about really stopping the violence of gangbanging. And it is kind of ironic that my life would sort of play out in this way. But I really wanted to send a message of how we were like wasting our lives, like gangbanging. Like one of us goes to jail for life and then the other one is killed, is no longer here. And then it was sort of ironic that at the time I was involved with the crime that sentenced me to to life in prison, that my brother was murdered on the streets. And here it was, I was sitting in a prison cell facing two life sentences in 32 years. And it just sort of hit me, all of that pain just hit me And it was like, here it was that I really got to see close up how my mother was had lost one son to the street and was about to lose another son to the prison system. And I I made this commitment within myself that I was going to make some real change and that I wanted a voice to talk about that change. But I had to go sit in prison, you know, to serve out this life sentence. So I basically spent my first 10 years, you know, reading Video Maker magazine, reading you know, the Hollywood Reporter, you know, Variety Magazine, reading all of these magazines about production, but really no real opportunity to actually produce until in 2007, Discovery Channel came in. Technically, it was Discovery Channel is where it aired at, but it was Radical Media. It was Bruce Sanofsky and um, Pepe Aguayo, 
you know, Shane King, Diana J. Brody. It was people who came in and took us through this training course that really gave me a real hands-on experience. So I wrote a script called Absence, and it was about the absence of a father in his child's life. And what it did, it took us from the journey of how my father's emotional absence affected my life and then how my physical absence was in turn affecting my child's life. That happened when, like I said, that's when Discovery Channel and Radical Media, when they came into San Quentin and they took us through this course and we got to produce these films. It aired in the seven part series on Discovery Channel. And after they left, they left all of the equipment. And it was thanks to um, Warden Ayers, who really um, I submitted a proposal to myself and other guys submitted a proposal to allow us to continue using the equipment. Uh, He granted that that led into us producing shows or just really trying to tell the life of what was happening inside the prison. Now, keep in mind, all of this was pretty much contained in the prison. It was. I got permission to start training other people because I really feel that the truth of what we went through can't come from one voice. I think that's been part of the problem is that we try to get one person to speak up and share this voice as though that is the voice for all people in that situation. That just couldn't be further from the truth. So my goal was to open this up to sharing this with other people and have other people start producing. Ultimately, that led us to um, producing radio. We had a partnership with KOW. And we started producing pieces at the time. Holly Kernan was the news director over there. And we started producing these shows that aired on KOW. We ultimately got permission to build a website. And our shows really just started leaving the prison. And then I paroled. So now what you see is a lot of what you see. And and, things shifted a lot after I paroled. What you see a lot of now coming out of San Quentin is what came from those early efforts. And my goal out here has been to do the same. I noticed how what we initiated actually changed the culture inside of the prison system, right? It really gave us a tool to the degree that you can have this tool inside, because as I like to tell people, there's no such thing as investigative journalism in prison, right? You're not bashing the system. You're not really uh, talking about what the system really needs to correct itself. You you can't have those like real discussions or you'll wind up in the hole somewhere and everything is filtered. So it has to go through a gatekeeper before it leaves the prison. So to the degree that we could, we just wanted to share a different side of who we were, you know, inside a prison, you know, other than the fear mongering that, you know, the MSNBC lockups or, Um, these other programs have typically done throughout the years. So we started doing that. And as I say, I paroled and, uh, you know, upon parole, my goal was to get my equipment together and start to build a life for me and sort of really take that out here now. Right. Because I don't know, there's a, there's a large, like right now being incarcerated is sort of uh, being like being romanticized to a degree, which is kind of like, um, it's kind of scary in a sense, right? We're, we're turning what the work that needs to be done inside a prison into um, money-making opportunities, right? And that should not be the case. It, it should be the case that we're actually trying to continue to effect real change from the people. And so I'm one who believes that in order for real change to happen, that you have to talk to the real people, 
Like you have to talk to people, not only who are still in that system, but there are thousands of us who have come home and we have something to say, right? We can absolutely begin to speak our truth now out here in this free world. And and that needs to be accounted for. And that needs to be, there needs to be an element of us producing our stories without the restraints of others interfering with those stories. We're going to be back with more of my conversation with Troy Williams. Check him out online at TroyWilliamsJournal.com. You can learn more about Troy and his work, what he's up to, and his story in greater depth. Here's a song called Hold Truth.
That was Michael Penn with Whole Truth. And now here's the next part of my conversation with Troy Williams. Can you tell me a story about someone who you know who might still be inside or might have come out, but for whom, besides you, because you're an example of this, but for whom this process of looking at how to heal this system is helping them heal themselves? <laughs> I have a I have a thousands of stories. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might. Like we just met up in Florida, for example. One of the people who was the, one of the 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 powerhouses behind the amendments for that passed in Florida, right, is a formerly incarcerated person, right. Um, the people who pushed that movement are formerly incarcerated people, right. We gathered in Florida. There was Florida. There was nine hundred of us who met up in Florida to really talk about the future of our movement and where we're trying to go with this and how we're trying to really influence the block to go back and influence the areas that we come from, right? Just talk with another young lady like yesterday, um, Jody Polk over in uh, in Florida, who is working on a jailhouse lawyer's guild. And I'm putting my own spin on her stuff, but you know, she's basically going around the country trying to organize and train people who are still incarcerated how to organize within their own expertise of what they've been able to teach themselves with regards to law and being, you know, quote unquote, jailhouse um, lawyers or paralegals, right? You have All of Us or None, right? Which is a very powerful organization. One of the, some of the organizers behind a lot of things that are going on around this country ran by formerly incarcerated people. Uh, you have Time for Change, which is ran by a formerly incarcerated woman. You have Choices for Freedom, which is ran by a formerly incarcerated person. I mean, there are countless numbers of people that are either running organizations, going inside of schools, um, working with law enforcement, you know, even trying to educate law enforcement about some of their practices and how that like affects us. Like, literally all over this country, right? But this is not what is getting the time of day with regards to mainstream media. Like that is not getting the airplay, right? So I literally, just this weekend, uh, we met together, a group of us had a a barbecue together, you know, just to sit up and just talk about the future. We have uh, another group that's ran by a uh, former incarcerated man and his wife that works with people trying to navigate relationships, you know, coming home. That happens on the first of every every month on Sundays, right? We just put together 50 backpacks for people coming home. So every person that we know that is coming home, these backpacks are generated that has phones and, you know, they're basically like starter kit for coming home, right? These are handing out to people at the front gate when they're walking out the gate. I just went inside myself. I went inside. I got invited by the captain. You know, one of the captains in the uh, Oakland Police Department invited me down to go talk to the men inside the county jail. Like that in itself is like a strange thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. But but what I've learned is to separate. You can separate people from their uniform, right? So I cannot demonize all of one people because they wear a uniform no more than I want all the people to demonize me because I had on a a blue uniform inside a prison, right? So this gentleman, he invited me down. He asked me to go in and talk to the people inside. And at first I could tell that they were like a little leery about me coming in. They only wanted to let out one pot, right? Which is about 25 people. So they were like, well, we only can let out one because it's just security reasons and, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
So I'm like, okay, I don't care if you let you can let out two at a time and you can let out two hundred. It, it doesn't matter to me. Like I'm I'm comfortable. Like I'm good. And so we went in. I talked to the first twenty five. Then he was like, okay, well you know what? I'm gonna let out the other three pies. So he let out three more pies. And then after I talked to them, then he was like, you know what? Can you come around to the other side? And he let out all four pies on the other side, right? The most important thing, I'll say this, the most important thing about that is that as I was talking to the people inside, they asked me, they said, we need programs. We need opportunities for change. We need something different. And we need it to be run by people who get where we coming from. Right. Who understand it. Right. Who understand what we've been through. Right. And then you had a lot of young people that I talked to that day that they were going away to do some time. They were going away to do like serious time and they wanted to know how I made it, like how I made it through. They go, they're walking into a life sentence. Right. And it can look really bleak. It looked bleak for me going into prison, you know, with a life sentence at such a young age. And so, you know, I shared with them just my experiences of how I made it through and things that they need to be working on while they're inside so that they can come home healthy and continue to try to maintain a relationship with their family, with their children, because that's the big issue. That, that, to me, that's why I do what I do. If, if we aren't doing something to protect, to protect the next generation of our kids that are coming up in this rat hole system, right, then we aren't doing our job. Right. We have to make this a better place for them because we know if we don't do anything, then we know what their future is destined to be like. Right. And so we have to do something for, for them. And when I came back and I told a group of my friends about it now, I got, you know, six, 10 people that want to go back in with me to create some change. I mean, I can just go on and on about just so many different stories. Like, I don't know if I know an organization right now where there isn't somebody that is like formerly incarcerated who is working with other people to help them out. Right. I'm back in school. I'm at San Francisco State University and there's a program um, there called Project Rebound, one of the oldest programs in, in the state. Uh, ran by a formerly incarcerated person, started by a formerly incarcerated person to help people navigate higher education. I worked for an organization called RISE on the campus of Chabot that does the same thing. Um, on the campus of, of Merritt, there's a, a program there called Street Scholars that does the same thing. On the campus of Laney, there's a program called ROC that does the same thing, right? And these programs are popping up all over the place and they're being guided by people who have the experience and that is being mixed with a level of expertise to go alongside their experience that I think is difficult. It, it, it makes it, I won't say it's difficult. I'll just say it this way. It makes it more the possibility for transformation to be a little bit easier or closer for people who, when somebody walks in that has the expertise and the, that has a theoretical knowledge and the practical application of that knowledge to pass it on. Um, that that has been, in my mind, uh, received well. Um, we have another group um, with our joy here in the um, in Oakland, where we have a, a black men's circle group, right? And one of the young guys in there, he brings a bunch of young guys with him when he comes from you know from 15, you know, on up, right? Um, he brings them with him, and and they we have missed out on our fathers in our communities. We have missed out on the 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 male. The uh, specifically the back the black male in our community has um, 
a lot, many of us were, you know, swept away in the, the gangs and the, the drug area and the, the war on drugs and all of like that and the, the crack epidemic. A lot of us like missed out. We missed out on the lives of our young people. And we see we see the fallout from that. And, and we're home to correct to the degree that we can. Many thanks to you, Troy, for being on Paradigms. TroyWilliamsJournal.com. Check it out. And you can look up restorative justice on the internet and learn more about it. And of course, be sure to tune in next week for the second part of this series on restorative justice with Catherine Hervey, filmmaker who's working on a film called The Prison Within, which will be out later this year. And we'll also be talking with Martina Cartman and Davida Briscoe of the Public Defender's Office in the state of Washington, who work in prisons in Washington, facilitating restorative justice process. You've heard two parts of my conversation with Troy Williams. You can hear the whole thing at the Paradigms website. Check that out. This episode of Paradigms, like all others, is archived at the Paradigms website, paradigms.life, and in iTunes under podcasts. So you can listen to it again, you can share it with friends, get all you can out of it. And please do check out our updated Patreon page, patreon.com slash paradigms. We really appreciate your support. We'll be back with the second part of this series on restorative justice next time. Be sure to tune in. Until then, I'm going to leave you with a song you may recognize. This is a classic Marvin Gaye song, Inner City Blues. Baruch signing off for Paradigms for this week. Be kind, be brave, be honest, be accountable. We can all do that. All right, see you next time on Paradigms.
been listening to Paradigms at paradigms.life.